Hello, everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today we're covering both male factor infertility and holistic IVF support with my friend and naturopathic colleague, Dr. Leah Gordon. Dr. Gordon is a licensed naturopathic and functional medicine doctor specializing in breaking up with birth control, root cause hormone balancing, holistic fertility and infertility, and integrative IVF support. She's the founder of Womanhood Wellness, an educational platform empowering women who want to become mothers now, soon, or someday. She's also one of the founding formulators at Needed and is the co-host of the popular podcast, Healthy as a Mother. Her passion behind womanhood wellness was sparked out of her own personal story struggling with hormonal issues and male factor infertility. It's such a treat to have her with us today. Welcome, Dr. Leah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to to chat with you and be on your your podcast. You're, You're such an inspiration to me. Well, likewise, we've really connected over the last few years, and it's been so fascinating and inspiring to watch you go through your own fertility journey. You have your own experience with male factor infertility, with IVF, and you've been so vocal about that, which I think is is healing to many of us and many mm-hmm. of your patients and those who are out there looking for an alternative and wanting to find some hope in their own story. Mm-hmm. So as we talk about male factor infertility, I have found that these factors are often left unexplored. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to start today by getting your perspective on why do you think that these things are not discovered for so long into someone's fertility trajectory? Oh, I know I couldn't agree more, you know, being a naturopathic doctor, seeing patients and also being a person going through this, I see the male side of fertility being neglected and forgotten and just kind of brushed under the rug, I think for a few different reasons. One is most of the people who are pursuing support medically in general are are women, (laughs) Um, depending on, on the situation, but that tends to be the case. And so I have a lot of patients who come to me who want to conceive their partner also is interested in having a child, but he doesn't come to the appointments. There's no conversation. Like it doesn't seem like he thinks that he has a role in it at all. So some of it is coming from the patients themselves. Some of it is coming from the idea that we don't do a lot of investigating fertility early on in a person or a couple's journey. And most insurance companies and most conventional doctors don't think to even look at a male's fertility until infertility has been diagnosed, which is over 12 months of trying to conceive, um, six months if you're over 35, but still that's a very long time that goes by where they don't even look at him. (laughs) You know, it's not even a, a part of the conversation if they're lucky enough to even have a doctor that, that checks his sperm and hormones at that point. And then a lot of times in the culture of our medical system that I see, once a couple has been struggling to conceive, if they're lucky enough to have a semen analysis, if there's something found that's not ideal, the immediate thought is, oh, well, let's just do IVF, IUI or IVF. And there's just not this understanding or this emphasis put on how we could be optimizing the man's health from the very beginning, long before maybe they even start trying, let alone to how to optimize and improve the sperm once there's a problem. And I think because there's this culture or this paradigm that, that nothing can be done or that they don't have the tools to support men. I don't think that they even see the point because, Mm -hmm. you know, in our field, we want that data as soon as possible, because then we can really help optimize and improve the outcomes in, in the conventional fertility paradigm. You just do IVF with ICSI. It doesn't matter. However, it does matter. And in our paradigm, it matters exponentially. And you know, what we'll talk about today is how important it is to optimize a man's sperm, no matter what the situation is and what path they go down to conceive. But I think there's a lot of different things, very cultural. I think that men have a lot of shame around fertility struggles. They're not going to be a person who necessarily vocalizes their concerns or their struggles. 
Um, and then it's not as obvious, I think, for a man that there might be a problem. When a woman, for example, has cycle issues and maybe she's not ovulating correctly or she's having symptoms or she's the one every month checking and her period has come again and she is like feeling that uh, real life evidence of no pregnancy, I think a lot of men just assume they're fine. They don't have any problem, you know, unless they have severe symptoms and even symptoms like erection issues or fatigue or issues with drive or, or, you know, an inability to build muscle. These are all signs that there could be something going on with the testosterone, which, which plays a role in sperm. A lot of men don't make that connection. And most men just assume that they're fine. So they don't even think that they need to pursue or look into anything. So there's a lot of different factors, I would say, as to why men are missed. What a loaded topic, right? (laughs) Things like you said, and I have definitely seen female patients. They're months into the process. It's probably thousands of dollars into, you know, advanced functional testing and they're doing all of this. And I'll say, okay, well, um, your partner's, you know, done a semen analysis, right? Nothing. Nope. Mm And, oh, it's so painful. And so this Mm -hmm. is another reason I'm so glad to talk with you about this today. Such an important concept. Uh, Sometimes I'll open it up on my Instagram to our podcast listeners and say, hey, I'm talking to an expert. What questions are coming up for you? And so we had a listener write in and say, when should I think about doing a semen analysis? If I haven't tried getting pregnant yet, I have no idea if I even have an issue. When should this be on my radar? So I have a very different approach, as you might agree with, and many people in our medical paradigm agree that I think every couple who wants to conceive should get a semen analysis done as soon as possible, because it only helps you if you check your partner's sperm or if he checks his sperm and everything's good. That's awesome. Because now you have peace of mind and that's wonderful to know that 50% of the fertility equation is looking good. If you do the analysis, even before you start trying and you find out that there's something amiss or there's something that could be optimized, then you have time to now make shifts. And in, like I mentioned, in the conventional fertility model, it is not recommended to get a semen analysis until infertility has been diagnosed. And I see that as such a disservice to a couple who wants to have a child because that means an entire, let's say there is something wrong with the semen and the sperm. That means a couple tries for 12 months, which I have been there and it is so painful and so Agonizing. agonizing and emotional and traumatizing. And it's hard on the relationship and it's hard on everybody involved. So let's say we don't test, they try for 12 months, go through all of that. The woman is put through then a series of tests. If she's lucky enough to have someone who, you know, investigates things and let's say they do finally do a sperm analysis and find an issue. Then if you make even just one change, that sperm isn't going to realize that change for at least 72 days. So two and a half to three months is the minimum that it takes to make shifts and changes in a man's life and have it show up in the sperm. And every month counts when you're trying to have a child. And I just see this time and time again, that people have, I don't want to say wasted time because I think there's value that comes in every experience in life, but it delays your ability to have a family significantly. When if that couple had just been guided on checking his sperm sooner then so much of that could have been avoided and potentially they could have been pregnant so much faster. And so I don't see any benefit to waiting to do a semen analysis. So no matter where you are on your journey, if you're just thinking about having kids, if you're just getting married, if you're you know starting to have the conversation or you've just started trying or you're far into trying, I highly recommend everybody check the sperm. It's so important. Yeah. Even if you learn a ton over those 12 months and you learn so much about yourself and your relationship, Mm -hmm. it comes at a cost. Mm -hmm. It came at the expense of the time and the agony and the emotional turmoil. Yes. I deeply admire your approach. I hear from 
mostly people send me messages on social media and say, I don't know how to go about getting a semen analysis. Do I have to go to the fertility clinic? It seems scary. I don't want to do Mm -hmm. anything else. Will you give our listeners some advice about how they should go about even accessing a semen analysis? Yeah, it's a good question. So like I said, in the conventional model, everything's kind of done in the insurance model. And people who want to play within the insurance boundaries are going to have restrictions. Most insurance companies are not going to cover a semen analysis until there is a diagnosis of infertility. However, you can check your sperm or your partner's sperm before a diagnosis of infertility. If you're willing to pay out of pocket, essentially, you might have a great insurance that covers it. So the first step would be to call your insurance and find out. Second step would be to decide where you feel more comfortable. Um, You can go to a male urologist who works with fertility or a fertility clinic to do that test. However, I would say in my experience, most men prefer to do them at home. And there are third-party labs that you can do called direct-to-consumer, meaning you don't have to get an order from a doctor and you can check your own sperm and semen at home do the test at home and send it off and they give you the results. And then I have a free guide on my website to show you the optimal results from a semen analysis and what's normal and what's functional. So you don't even need to go to the doctor. It's a pretty simple test. A lot of men feel, you know, uncomfortable going to a clinic and having to to give a sample that way. So you don't even have to go that route. And one of my favorite companies is called Give Legacy or Legacy. Their website's givelegacy.com. They're CLIA certified, which is the certification that you want to look for, for a third-party lab. And they're very simple and easy. The only downside is that you have to pay out of pocket. It's around $150 to $200 for a test. But in my experience, and my opinion, I think it's well worth it. Um, if you want to save money and wait, you just either have to find a doctor who's willing to put in the order before a diagnosis, or you have to wait a year of trying. I'm so glad you brought up some of the direct to consumer options because it just really increases that accessibility mm-hmm. that we're all looking for. And I even feel so, um, I'm so grateful that my local fertility clinic, which is Seattle Reproductive Medicine here in my area, they now have an option where I can go to their website or anyone patients can go to their website and they can just click and schedule a semen analysis. Oh, they don't need a referral. They don't need anything. That's great. They can just go and it will ask you as you're clicking through the options, like, is this semen analysis only? Does someone also need an HSG or a fertility eval or anything? So you can be really clear about what your goals are. And it's so nice. Oh my gosh. I love that. Yeah. So check in your area. You know, if you feel nervous about going through a, a direct to consumer lab, a lot of companies in general are making labs more accessible to patients. And I am just such a believer that we as people should have access to know what's going on in our bodies. I don't feel like there should be, you know, a huge barrier. If you want to know what's going on with your hormones, if you want to know what's going on with your sperm, you should be allowed to know that you shouldn't have to wait an entire year of trying before you can figure out what's going on and how you could potentially optimize. So I'm a big fan of of patients having access to data about their body. Yeah. I'm also thinking, um, with the direct to consumer options, it might be more uh, approachable to repeat your testing. Will you talk us through how you counsel patients about when they should repeat after they've initiated some lifestyle nutrition changes? Totally. I love data. So I'm a big fan of repeating tests. I know that, you know, sometimes it feels like a lot to, to get a test multiple times in a row. Technically the like proper way to do a semen analysis is that you do two a few weeks apart initially to kind of have a good baseline. I don't always make my patients do that. I typically get a good sense of what's going on with one analysis. And then we make some shifts and changes in their life. So because it takes sperm about 72 days minimum. So from the time that they're little immature sperm to when they are ejaculated and can, you know, make a baby, it is a long process. And so if you want to see if things have improved, you need to wait at least 72 days, but I recommend a minimum of three months before testing, just because some, you know, people have a slightly longer time and things like that. Depending on your time frame, if you're a preconception person, meaning you're in the season of just preparing for pregnancy, there's no serious rush 
you know, maybe do a semen analysis after three months or four months, maybe even six months if you want to make some big changes, um, if budgeting is an issue. But I would say every three months in the time of active work is appropriate. Uh, some people do it every six months or every year if they're like really not ready for kids yet, but just want to see what's going on. If someone is in the, okay, we're trying to make changes and then get pregnant right away, a minimum, I would say of like 72 days. Yeah. I have been meaning to ask you this. I've actually been meaning to email you about this and and pick your brain. My fertility clinic, when you go through to book your semen analysis, it says um, you have to kind of click through uh, some prep, some mm-hmm. prep instructions. And it says, don't schedule your semen analysis if you have had a fever in the mm-hmm. last three months. Yes. And I have some parents of, you know, preschool, kindergarten age, and they're like, really? I am always exposed to stuff with small mm-hmm. children around. I just w- really wanted to know how you counsel your patients about timing when there's these factors. Yes. So when someone has a fever or an infection, it can greatly change your sperm results. Uh, sperm are very fragile and <laughs> they're just impacted by everything. And heat is one of those. Infection is one of those. And so it's not that you can't do a semen analysis. It's just that you need to, if for some reason you had a fever or an infection within the three months prior of doing your test and the results come back and don't look great, you need to have that understanding that they are most likely being influenced. And so in a certain way, it's almost like a waste of a test because you don't know exactly where you're at. However, it can still give you some idea. For example, if this is your first ever semen analysis and you do the semen analysis and it comes back where you have less than 5,000 sperm, for example, you should have 15 million plus that's a count that is how much you should have. So let's say you have 5,000 or less. That is not something that came from the fever or the infection. That is something that is a, a blockage issue, some severe azospermic type of situation, meaning a very, very, very small amount of sperm. And so that could alert you to something really alarming that you need to go be evaluated by a urologist and get a proper workup. A, a fever or an infection is typically not going to drop your sperm that much. So it can still give you some idea of a baseline, but let's say you do the test and the sperm is just kind of suboptimal, the morphology, motility, uh, everything is a little bit not great. Then I would say repeat after you've been out of a, a fever and infection for at least three months. We saw this a lot with COVID, a wow. lot of people who had COVID within the three months of doing a semen analysis had really mm-hmm. bad levels. <laughs> Like the COVID and the vaccine, both, they seem to impact it pretty significantly. But the cool thing is that sperm bounces back pretty quickly. So you just need to be out of that window as much as you can. But if you're, if it's impossible, you know, you can do the test and still gain some, some data. Really helpful and approachable. (laughs) I I also try to talk to patients about the, we have to do a cost benefit analysis. You're spending money, testing done. Are you going to be alarmed and discouraged by results if they are suboptimal? And then you're going to want to repeat anyway. Mm -hmm. So just walking through all of those details. Yep. Uh, Will you give us an overview or an idea of some of the other testing that you might do for male partners who come in and they say, I really want to optimize my fertility aside from the semen analysis, which I'm definitely going to do. What are some Mm -hmm. of the other things we should be checking in on? So I am a fan, like I said, of data and looking at the body as a whole. First and foremost would be looking at the hormones. Typically, if a man has an issue with sperm, we automatically want to go look at these things, but you can kind of do them side by side, looking at his testosterone, his total and free testosterone, which plays a big role in making sperm, but also as a sign of just vitality in general, uh, looking at the hormones, FSH and LH. These are also the hormones that are involved with making testosterone and sperm, but I go further and look at what are signs of the body in general, being in health, things like homocysteine, homocysteine is a marker that goes up if the person is not detoxing well, or if they don't have good methylation factors and they can't basically create proper DNA and they can't move through that cycle. I mean, I won't get too medical <laughs> trying to like keep it basic, but essentially 
a high homocysteine can be a sign that there's a big issue going on. And there's a lot of data and evidence to show that high homocysteine can be indicated in male fertility issues. So that's a classic one that I check. I like to get a whole lipid panel just to kind of see what's going on with the man's fats and lipids, their cholesterols, more to look for inflammation. You know, is his LDL really high? Are there certain markers that are telling me that inflammation is going on in the system? I also like to look at HSCRP. It's another marker of inflammation. Anytime the body is inflamed, it's going to cause more issues with fertility in both men and women. So just looking for some of these markers, um, I look at vitamin D and other nutrients. If, if someone can, you know, maybe doing more of a, a full nutrient panel to just kind of see how the body is doing with nutrients, but I don't require that for everybody. Um, so we want to look at hormones. We want to look at thyroid thyroid impacts men and women in fertility. So not just looking at TSH, which is the main thyroid hormone that conventional doctors check, but looking at free and total T3 and T4 reverse T3 and antibodies. I have had male patients who have subfertility and it's a thyroid issue. Mm-hmm. I think we forget that men are impacted by thyroid stuff too. Uh, it's not just, it is more common for females, but men can have issues with thyroid. So just getting a, a comprehensive look in general at a lot of different factors. Uh, and like I said, I do have a guide for this and maybe you do too on the labs. I typically like to look at just as an overall sense. And there is more of a succinct list and then more of a comprehensive list. And I also like doing a full intake of what's going on with your, your diet, your lifestyle, your sleep, your stress, these all are going to impact fertility. Um, I often ask before ever doing a test, do you wake up with an erection? If men never wake up with an erection, that could be a sign of low testosterone. If they don't have enough testosterone, they're going to have a hard time making sperm. Uh, another sign would be lack of drive. If they're just like, I'm very unmotivated. I have no drive for life. I don't really want to, I do the bare minimum and I just want to veg on, on the couch and watch TV. Um, if they have a hard time gaining muscle mass, these can all be signs of lower testosterone that could warrant more testing. I think this comprehensive testing is so important because we know that there are common intersecting pathways with infertility and the risk for chronic disease in men, cardiovascular disease, cognitive decline. So it's really a health promotion and allowing us to support longevity when we do our fertility assessment. Not like we need to make a case for it because it's important yeah. way, but I think sometimes it's like, oh, you can come in for your annual wellness exam and we can capture some of these pieces that are also going to affect your fertility, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I tell my male patients, you know, because I, I get it. Not everybody it's fertility is an interesting field to work in because it's sort of like pediatrics where you're sort of treating two people at the same time. And <laughs> I don't do peds, but in trainings and stuff, it, it was very much that you have the patient, but then you have this other person who's like in charge of their life in a big way. Um, in fertility, you know, you're obvious you're, you're often treating one person primarily. And then in my experience, most of the time, the male patient is sort of like there and also interested, but they're not like the primary person and they're kind of doing it to do the bare minimum to just, you know, they want their wife or their girlfriend or their partner to, to have a baby, but maybe it's not like they are every single day, you know, waking up super motivated. I have had those patients. My husband was that patient, but what I, what you have to do is kind of, and I, <laughs> I've had patients ask me, how do I get my husband or my partner motivated to do these changes? Because they want them to do them. They know the importance. They've read the books on epigenetics and how important it is to optimize both of their health. And I always say, you have to really understand what motivates them. And it's just motivational interviewing, right? We learn this as, as naturopathic doctors, but it's important to understand what motivates them, not just what motivates you. And there's lots of different paths you could go with that. But for some men, they are motivated by the fact that, yes, they see, okay, once I have my sperm contribution and we are pregnant, I'm done. Like, I don't need to be healthy anymore. It doesn't have to happen. And I just want to always remind people that you also hopefully, you know, or some people are motivated by this, want to be healthy enough to be with your children when they grow up and when they go to college and, you know, you don't want to have a heart attack before they get married. And 
it, your health is not just to donate a Sam, a semen sample, you know, it, it's so much more than that. And I, I hope some people can like get behind that, that to invest in their health and take the time and the effort and, and all of the things is not just for, even though it's very important, it's not just for becoming pregnant, but it's for having healthy parents to raise the children that you're trying to bring into the world. So that's motivating for some people, not everybody, but that's really helpful. We want to feel good in our bodies and have the freedom and the energy to do the things that give us meaning and purpose. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. super motivated by that, but I, <laughs> I know. right. Everybody has their own thing. Mm-hmm. Dr. Leah, will you, um, there, there, I'm going to give you a scenario because mm-hmm. I talk to women sometimes and they'll say, I've been really trying to get pregnant. My husband has had some blood work and was found to have low testosterone and his doctor put him on testosterone. And mm-hmm. now I'm not getting pregnant. What do you think is going on? <laughs> Will you walk us through this scenario? Yes. So the body is very funny in that it works on lots of different feedback loops where if you are giving the body external hormones, it sort of gives the signal to the body to shut down its own production and it doesn't need to do things anymore. I understand that it makes sense if there's a low hormone that you would give a hormone, you know, some people think that way, but in fertility, it doesn't always work that way. So birth control, hormonal birth control for women is giving women external hormones to shut down our reproduction. When you give a man external testosterone, it can do the same. And it's been shown to lead to testicular atrophy and low sperm counts. And so there might be a time and a place for testicular or for testosterone replacement, but in my paradigm, it is not necessarily in the fertility window. Maybe after you are done having kids, if the man wants to pursue that, you know, that's his own choice, but I do not recommend a man being on testosterone while trying to conceive. I think there's better ways to boost testosterone naturally. Fertility is not something you can just manhandle and kind of manipulate into a box Uh, fertility is a little more fragile than that. And that's frustrating. I think to a lot of people that you can't just give a pill and get pregnant all the time. Um, But yeah, I'm not a fan of testosterone replacement in the season of trying to conceive for men. And um, there are better ways to do it. And I would save that for when you're done having kids. Yes. Thank you. I think I just want to really spread that (laughs) message. When one of my mentors and men's health expert, Dr. Mark Holthouse really talks about this and with testosterone replacement therapy, really doing a thorough screening and talking to the patient about what mm-hmm. are your goals in terms of fertility. And that's, you know, going to be a contraindication if he's desiring to conceive because it's mm-hmm. just so detrimental to the sperm. And I still see this scenario come up all the time and it's a bit frustrating, but like you said, it is, I mean, I can see the temptation. Oh, hormone Mm -hmm. is low. We have the hormone, Mm -hmm. but that isn't always the solution. So talk to us about alternatives. If someone has um, low sperm counter or low testosterone, how do we support that balance within the body? Well, first and foremost is working on the foundations, which no one likes to hear, but it is the truth that it is like what you have to do. You make growth hormone when you sleep and that is needed to make testosterone. So he has to be sleeping, whatever he needs to do to be sleeping. If it's, you know, cutting out screen time at night, if it's, you know, changing up a job routine, if it's, you know, sleeping later, I mean, there, I get that there's obstacles that people have. Um, there's a lot of natural support that you can do for supporting sleep. If he's having a hard time sleeping, but sleep at least seven, if not eight, nine hours is ideal. Stress is another killer for testosterone. So supporting stress, I I get that that sounds so cliche and people who who are trying to conceive hate being told to reduce their stress, but the reality is that it's true. And a lot of times it's things that we can do every day to shift our life around to make improvements. I have a whole course on this where I actually break down what stress is and, and what a realistic way of reducing stress looks like, but that's another huge one. Diet is also huge for making enough testosterone. Um, if he can get exercise, so lifting in particular, doing weightlifting, not extreme exercise, but just enough can help to boost testosterone. 
and improve a lot of other things in your life, but testosterone in particular. And then from a natural medicine perspective, there's a lot of different herbs to support not only testosterone, but also sperm, things like shilajit and uh, uricoma longa and tribulus terrestris. I know these are all Latin names for herbs, but uh, like tribulus terrestris is actually we call them goat heads growing up in Colorado, but they're the little weeds that have little spikes that are very annoying that everyone hates if you have any property anywhere, but that is one of the best herbs for men's health. Um, things like ashwagandha uh, is a adaptogenic herb that has been shown to not only help with stress, but help with testosterone and sperm. Lots of antioxidants. Those help more on the sperm quality side. But there's a lot of different things that you can do getting in mitochondrial support, the L-carnitines, CoQ10. These are all things. It's sort of hard to tease out exactly what's just for sperm and what's just for testosterone because they all work synergistically. Um, however, there are more specific herbs for just testosterone if that's what you're looking for. But in fertility, you want to kind of do all of it. So the foundations are key. And then there's natural medicine that we can use to help support that as well. And are you delivering these individually? Are there blends that you're using? Yeah. Oh, and all the micronutrients and, and important vitamins that I forgot. So things like zinc are very important for making sure you have enough testosterone. So I like men to be on a good, high quality multivitamin mineral that makes sure that you have selenium and zinc and the B vitamins that you need to make the sperm and all of those things. Um, I'm kind of biased. I really like needed cause I helped formulate them, but there's a lot of great companies out there. You just want to make sure that they're dosed high enough, um, to optimize, you know, testosterone and sperm. Cause typically if someone has a depletion of testosterone or sperm, they're kind of depleted in general in nutrients and, you know, good practices of diet and lifestyle and those kind of things. They might need a little extra than just a maintenance kind of dose. And then yes, there are beautiful blends to support, um, needed has a good support, uh, Fairhaven health has a really good men's support for just boosting testosterone. I really like designs for health's libido support for mm -hmm. men. Um, it, they obviously are targeting toward libido, but that's helping testosterone <laughs> and anything that helps testosterone will inherently help sperm. It doesn't have as many of the antioxidant blends, but yes, they come in blends. Those are probably three of my favorite, favorite brands for, for men's support. Um, and yeah, you don't have to take every single thing individually. There's lots of good, good companies out there. Yeah. Very good. Always nice to avoid some of that supplement fatigue. Yes. Now I, I am thinking of a patient who I was working with. He was he and his wife had been trying to conceive for, I think, about nine months. And um, so I, we decided to do a, a lifestyle inventory. And he mm -hmm. said, yep, I'm nutrition and sleep. That's all good. I'm exercising. Yep, I'm doing hot yoga three times a week. And then <laughs> afterwards, I'm sore. So I'm sitting in the sauna and like, all good. <laughs> wow, what a red flag for me. And we yeah. had to have this talk about testicular heat. Will you just give us a little primer on testicular heat? And what are some of the the top sources of heat that you're seeing? Yeah. So sperm don't like heat. Uh, <laughs> why we evolved to have, you know, the testicles outside of the body. That's a conversation with God or source, whoever you, you think, <laughs> you know, is involved in that, but they don't like to be hot. So it is very common for people who are detoxing, who are wanting to be healthy and optimal to go to hot yoga, to do the sauna, to cycle on a bike, to do a lot of exercises, wearing, you know, lots of clothes. Like I have people who, um, do, uh, like I had a hockey player. I mean, he was like, he's like, I am so hot in my hockey suit. Yeah. I'm like, well, that's probably not the best when you're trying to conceive. I know you're on the ice, but you yourself are very hot. So yes, heat will damage sperm. And I would say, yeah, sauna, hot baths. Men actually take baths more than you'd think. I have a lot of male patients that take baths. So sauna, baths, hot tub, uh, cycling, just tight or, or thick, you know, workout clothes or, or things for sports, you know, football gear, hockey gear, anything that just heats up the testicles in a big way. Um, just being mindful of that and potentially taking a break from those for the three months before you want to try to conceive. And I get the patients that have been trying for a long time and it's really hard to give up the things that you love. And so, you know, I had a patient who was a avid 
cycler and he had a Peloton and I was like, well, just don't sit, you know, do a lot of standing kind of exercises, make sure you're wearing looser shorts, uh, these kind of things. So there's ways to get around it, but the, the, the sauna and the hot tub are, are kind of a, a no for the trying to conceive time because they just, they can damage sperm if, if the count is suboptimal, especially. Right. Even, even our male patients who are sitting for most mm-hmm. of the day, like truck driver or police officer, yes. you know, where you're sitting a lot. And sometimes I'll just say, you don't have to quit your job just every hour or so, like find a rest stop, do mm-hmm. stand up and let that heat dissipate a little bit. Yeah. Or, you know, my husband at certain times would actually have a cooler with little ice packs and he would just like bring, if we were sitting for a long time or if, you know, he needed to do something and he would just kind of put them around his testicles, not freezing them, but yeah. just reducing the temperature so uh, that he wouldn't overheat, you know, but we did everything absolutely possible <laughs> in our situation that it didn't, you know, end up in a natural conception, but he still tried it all. So we've been there. We've done it all. On that note, can we talk a little bit about your own IVF journey and some holistic support for IVF? Because I know this is something that you're super passionate about. And I've read, I am, I I like devour the content that you create on your own experience with IVF because it's just, you know, this perspective as a naturopathic doctor, you have tools and this knowledge that not everyone has access to. And to see you combine those worlds, I think is super valuable. And so I read recently that, you know, you kind of identified some areas where naturopathic Mm -hmm. or functional medicine could enhance the success of IVF. And I really wanted to share with our audience, what were some of those areas where you thought, wow, we really have an opportunity to enhance this process? Absolutely. Yeah. I was actually really shocked going through the IVF process. And obviously I am N of one. Um, but when I see my patients who I support through the IVF process, I see it happen time and time again. So I'm sure it's not in every single situation, but in the majority of the situations, I see a severe lack of support for the female or the male and, or going through this process. The first area where we can really support is in optimizing the egg and sperm quality before doing an egg retrieval. So for anyone who's not familiar with IVF, there's a couple phases that you go through during, during that process. And the first phase is that you, as a woman are typically given medication to grow more follicles than would naturally mature in a normal cycle, you mature one dominant follicle to ovulate one egg in IVF. We give medications to the woman to turn that group of follicles that would naturally not make the cut that would normally just kind of die and resorb into the body. We try to mature those into viable eggs. And the analogy that I give is imagine that you have a child and your sole job is to feed it and nourish it so that he, she can do its important job. Okay. And you have one apple and you give the child an apple every day. And that's great. The child's great. They're well nourished. Everything is going well. Now, what if someone told you, okay, now you no longer just have one child. You have 12 children that all need to be well nourished to do this important job. If you don't change your situation, if you're still just having one apple, meaning your diet's the same, your nutrition support is the same, your supplementation is the same. Now each child has a 12th of an apple and all of the children are suboptimal and hungry. And that's what happens in IVF. When we are maturing more than one egg, we need even more support, even more nutrients, even more antioxidants than a woman conceiving naturally because we now need to turn 12, 15, for some women, 25 or 30 eggs, which in my opinion is too many, but that happens where they all need those nutrients. They all need the antioxidant support. And so we really need to up our game and really support egg quality substantially. On the sperm side, (laughs) I asked all of our reproductive urologists going through our infertility. Is there anything that we can do? Is there anything? I just wanted to see what they would say. I knew the answer, but I said, is there anything we can do to support sperm and to support quality? And they, all of the people I asked said, no, the one guy said, well, you could take a centrum vitamin, but it's just a waste of money. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, first of all, I would never tell anyone to take a Centrum vitamin. I would say, don't take any vitamin other than a Centrum vitamin, because it would probably cause more harm than good. And it made me so sad because there's so much that they could be doing to help their patients. They clearly don't read their own literature because that's not true. And so it's very much an assumption in certain conventional fertility circles that there's no need to support sperm health because we get around the problems with IVF. If sperm don't swim, we just do ICSI, which is where they basically take sperm and stick it in the egg with tweezers essentially. And in my worldview, if a sperm can't swim, there's something potentially not optimal about that sperm. Maybe it's mitochondria is struggling or there's an epigenetic issue or a genetic issue. And so when we don't take the steps to optimize the sperm as much as we can, I know that you can't maybe make it perfect, but as much as you can, then what results is poor quality embryos that don't make it to the blastocyst stage, which is the stage that they need to make it to, you know, be implanted back into the womb or there's failed transfers or there's issues in pregnancy or health issues with the baby because it all comes down to the health of the egg and the sperm from the very beginning. So that's like something I'm really passionate about and was shocked that there was such little support for people going through IVF in that regard. Um, The other window is helping women to detox and just rebalance after doing egg retrieval. You know, I've injected myself with those medications and I opted to do a awake egg retrieval. I didn't take the anesthesia And let me tell you, that is a traumatic thing that happens to your reproductive system. And in hindsight, I probably wouldn't choose that again, but now I know, and I'm actually really grateful for it because being poked with a needle through your vaginal wall and into your ovaries to retrieve eggs 14 to 30 times is very traumatic to that area. And there's a lot of rebalancing of the microbiome because they give you antibiotics during that procedure the ultrasounds that are done in IVF often disrupt the vaginal microbiome. And you're just given so many medications and hormones that the body really needs a chance to kind of rebalance. So that's the other phase that I see us helping women is in that phase. And then in optimizing before doing an embryo transfer, it's very unique in IVF because in the preconception phase of someone who's conceiving naturally, you prepare your body you conceive naturally and you need to have good egg and sperm at that time. And then you automatically are pregnant. And so you needed to also kind of prepare the womb and the body because like it all happens at the same time. In IVF, it's segmented. So you first optimize egg and sperm ideally and all the other things that come along with that. There's a lot to that. But then when you're getting ready to do an embryo transfer, if you've done a frozen embryo transfer, meaning They freeze the blastocyst once it's grown outside the body and they implant it at a separate time. Then you have an opportunity and it's important to, and what I see is lacking in this place to really optimize you as the receiving person, your, your uterus, reducing inflammation, your stress. I would say stress and the energetics are much more important at this phase because you are asking something to receive another life form. And there's so much more to fertility than just the mechanics of it. And why I see so many failed transfers, I think is because we don't honor and respect this part of the fertility process. So there's so much that we can do in from a physical, mental, and emotional and energetic space to really help women in that season preparing before doing an embryo transfer. Um, and so, yeah, those are kind of like the three core areas that I, I see lacking and where there's so much more greatness to be had. Much greatness to be had. <laughs> so much greatness. <laughs> between, between your egg retrieval and your embryo transfer, how much time passed? How much time did you give yourself to kind of prepare the vessel? Yeah. Good question. So I, I I talk about this in in my course, but there's everyone's unique and different. If you can avoid doing a fresh transfer, I recommend frozen embryo transfers. A fresh transfer means that five days after you've gone through that procedure, they put the embryo into your uterus. And in my opinion, I do not feel that the body is in a great position to receive 
an embryo and your body's trying to detox, you know, anesthesia and in some cases fentanyl and antibiotics and steroids sometimes or other things, you know, benzos for stress. I mean, the, the things that they give to a woman during IVF that doesn't even count the hormones to be pregnant five days after that, after that traumatic procedure that I experienced awake. And I can tell you is not an easy thing. I would say if you can delay and do a frozen transfer, I personally think that's ideal. The other benefit that comes with doing a frozen transfer is that you can take time between that procedure and the embryo transfer. I personally would recommend at least a month, but I think two to three is the minimum that I would choose. And for me, that's what I did. Um, It takes the body about two to three months to kind of rebalance from something, especially hormonal. I opted to do a natural transfer, which means that because ours was male factor, I ovulate normally. I have normal cycles. I make, you know, plenty of progesterone. I ovulate one egg every month. So my clinic was able to follow my natural ovulation and just without medications implant the embryo at the exact time that I would normally have an embryo implant about a week after my natural ovulation. Because of that, and for anyone who's choosing to do that, I would say at least three months is ideal to rebalance from all of the hormonal craziness that is required to retrieve the eggs. For someone who's not doing a natural transfer, the whole transfer process is very medicated and controlled. So in that regard, you know, you're kind of detoxing hormones to then go back into other hormones, but I still think there's so much value in rebalancing the microbiome, reducing your stress, letting your body heal and just kind of prepare yourself energetically, even if you're going to be taking hormones. So that would be my ideal. I understand that once you're already at the IVF stage, you've been trying so long, taking another month or two is so painful, but I really am a big believer that the more your body is prepped, ready, and able to receive the better the outcomes. And I've seen women not listen to that intuition that they should maybe wait, even though their brain wants them to go sooner, or they, you know, see the positive pregnancy tests of their best friend. And so they're like, screw it. I'm just going to go in this month. And I see them lose the baby because they're, they're really not actually ready. So I really encourage people to check in. I'm always telling my patients that your intuition is way stronger than any external source. Even if your doctor says you're fine, if you don't feel fine, or if they don't say you're ready, but you feel ready, like you are having this communication with your baby soul. I believe that, that you are creating and trying to bring into this world. And the more that you can get still and quiet and connect with that, I truly believe you have better outcomes because you're in a co-creative process and, and you are the one with the knowledge and the intuition to, to make it happen. So that's a lot of what I talk about for, for that stage. Wow. So beautiful. And you've obviously learned so much through your own experience and working with all of your patients, supporting them through this process. And I know this is maybe a tough question, but I'm so curious if you could go back to the beginning of your own fertility journey, is there some piece of advice that you know now you would have needed? Oh my God, that list is very long. Um, It's a tough question to answer because the thing that I wish that I had known sooner was to prioritize practice and get to faster that which is acceptance. Mm. Um acceptance was probably the hardest lesson I had to learn on our infertility journey and surrendering and accepting are the key to happiness and peace in my opinion. And the infertility process often brings up the opposite of surrendering and accepting yet that process teaches you that. And why I wish I had known that sooner is it took me many, many years to get there And I know that everything, you know, ended up exactly as it needed to for our journey, but the longer you resist, the more painful and more suffering you experience. So the faster that you can process, you know, do, do therapy, do release work, do anything that helps you to get to the place of surrender and acceptance, the better it all ends up being. The thing is though, a lot of people get to surrender and acceptance through learning the hard lessons. But uh, for me, it was the most powerful 
thing that I learned and the biggest gift that I received from my journey. But yes, I, I, I wish anyone going through this to, to do all of the necessary steps to help them find a place of peace, acceptance, and surrender. That is excellent advice. And I think a beautiful kind of summation and takeaway from our episode, you've shared so many amazing tips and suggestions and pieces of your own experience that are so valuable. And what we know is, you know, anytime we're going through a hard, I mean, fertility journey and beyond any challenge in life, sometimes it can be helpful to find simple pleasures. And that's how Mm -hmm. I'm going to link us to our final question of the episode, which is somewhat lighthearted and fun, which is how I like Mm -hmm. to close my time with our guests. For me and for many others, a simple pleasure might be something like a pumpkin spice candle. And we are here <laughs> in the fall season. And so for our pumpkin girlies, I know that we want to avoid our toxic exposures for mm-hmm. the health of our fertility. And I know you have some expertise in this area and maybe can direct us towards some healthier healthier alternatives. Where can we find a non-toxic candle <laughs> to make our fall scent dreams come true? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. And yes, I have found a few companies recently Um I have them on my website as well at womanhoodwellness.com slash products. But my favorite brand right now is called Natural Sloth. They're kind of a small batch brand and they're completely non-toxic and they really smell beautiful. So I have the fall scent and the ginger spice scent and they're both delectable. I love them. Um, And yeah, I, there's a couple other brands that are on that website, but that's the one that's coming to mind right now. And I, I really love them and I love supporting the small companies who are doing the right thing. Adding to cart immediately (laughs) so that we can have our moments of pleasure and quiet. Dr. Leah, will you let our listeners know where they can find you? Because I know they'll want to learn more. Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at Dr. Leah Gordon. So D-R-L-E-A-H-G-O-R-D-O-N. And then you can check out my website. I have a free fertility type quiz where you can find your unique fertility type and be given the top three tips I recommend you start right now. Um, Oops, my light's going out at womanhoodwellness.com slash quiz. Perfect. Well, listeners, thank you so much for being with us for this episode and receiving all these takeaways on male factor infertility and holistic support for IVF. To the show's incredible producer, Paola Martini, thank you for making this happen. And to our guest, Dr. Leah Gordon, thank you so much for being with us. It's just been a real pleasure to connect with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We'll see you all next time. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.